Human history, like a river, will keep moving forward with moments of both calm waters and huge waves. We have before us the opportunity to forge a new world order. The problem with modern days unipolarity is precisely that. The West is leading Ukraine down the primrose path. We don't have enough tanks, we don't have enough vessels, we don't have enough planes. To bring chip productions here to the US. This is multipolarity, charting the rise of the new multipolar world order. Coming up this week, gold has lost its tiny mind. Traditionally, it rises in line with inflation surges, falls with interest rate rises. Until now, like a classic heist film, there's a plot underway. Central banks, including China, are buying it up in bulk, preparing for a future of de-dollarization. The fallout between India and Canada rumbles on, with India expelling 41 Canadian diplomats. The world's most unlikely political rivalry might be terrible for international thriller writers, but as we'll be pointing out, it's also terrible for the West's ability to project a united front against an increasingly voluble developing world. Nearly twice the Irish GDP has been pumped into Biden's big green bill, the so-called Inflation Reduction Act. So as renewable stocks collapsed by 20% in recent months, are we about to see his Democrats hoist on a wave of renewable company defaults? But first, bad as gold. Yeah, a chart was doing the rounds this week. It came originally from Bloomberg, from John Authors's very good newsletter there. And it shows that, well, something that's been known in markets for quite some time, which is that the gold price moves inversely with the a yield on treasury infl- uh, tips, so treasury inflation protected securities. Those are the government bonds that the US government and some other go- governments sell, that if you if you buy them, the yield on them is linked to inflation. They're also called linkers for that reason. You're guaranteed to get a, a yield or a coupon or an interest payment in real terms rather than nominal terms. Since uh, at least 2008, the gold price has basically moved with the yield on on tips or linkers. And that kind of makes sense. It kind of shows that both assets are mainly concerned with central bank policy and inflation. And to understand that a little bit more, we should probably say what determines the tips yield, because obviously if we're saying that the tips yield determines the gold price, then it's useful to know what determines the tips yield, logically speaking. So the tips yield is basically driven by the treasury yield, which is uh, basically set, you can think of it as being set by the Federal Reserve. It's not quite perfectly set by the Federal Reserve, but it's largely guided by the Federal Reserve interest rate policy. And then the rate of inflation on top of that. So what you get out of that is that the gold prices, at least since 2008, 2009, have been set in line with number one, inflation or inflation expectations more accurately, and number two, interest rate dynamics, or perhaps more accurately, in interest rate expectation dynamics. And that's basically how the gold price is being set. There's not a great deal of uh, mystery to it. But the gold price has recently broken this correlation. So that correlation's been in place for 12, 13 years. And it's suddenly, in the middle of 2022, broken away from this. Now, the break in it has been quite obvious for some time. But you know, when you're dealing with a correlation like this, sometimes you can get a temporary break in the series and you can't really call it. But I think the break is now over a year old. It's about a year and four months 
or so approximately and it's pretty clear that the that the price has broken now what does that mean it means that given current inflation rates and interest rates gold prices should be a lot lower than they are gold price is still floating around $1900 an ounce it should be down at around let's say a thousand roundabouts so that's a lot it's broken the correlation and gold now based on this metric looks extremely overvalued but it's probably not overvalued because there's probably a new player in the gold market and that appears to be central banks we've covered it on the podcast before central banks since the seizure of the russian assets from the sanctions last year after the invasion of ukraine central banks have been shopping around for alternative reserve holdings and one of the first types of reserve holding that came on their radar was gold, which is quite predictable in a sense. So we can discuss the ramifications of this and maybe the dynamics in the gold market and so on more generally in a moment. But I think the key headline here is that the structural changes, and they are real structural changes in the gold market, in the setting of the gold price, are probably the first significant quantitative piece of evidence for de-dollarization. Everybody's been screaming on Twitter, yeah, great, we've heard about uh, de-dollarization, show us the evidence. And they point to reserve holdings and they want them to change overnight and dollar reserve holdings to crash overnight. None of that's going to happen. Well, here's your first piece of evidence. The gold market has fundamentally changed. Yeah, you're right. And there's hard data to back this up. Over the last eight months or approximately, okay, let me start (laughs) Yeah, and there's hard data to back this up. Since the beginning of this year, ETFs, which are exchange-traded funds, some of our listeners might have invested in these. You can buy them. You can buy an exchange-traded fund in the S&P 500 or the FTSE 100, and the ETF will essentially grow or decline based on the performance of that stock market. You can buy ETFs in all kinds of things if you want. But one of the things that you can buy ETFs in is physical gold. You can buy an ETF in physical gold, and the value of that investment will go up and down based on the performance of gold. That makes ETFs one of the big buyers in the world gold market. And they've actually been net sellers this year, strangely enough. They've sold about 130 tons of gold so far this year. But here's the thing. Purchases by the Chinese Central Bank, the People's Bank of China, alone has more than overwhelmed those ETF sales. The the People's Bank of China has bought approximately uh, 220 tons of gold since November last year. So essentially in the last... 11 months. And that's just China. Other central banks are also buying. And I think this is a key uh, signal, essentially, that central banks are starting to search around for alternatives to the dollar in which to store wealth. It's as simple as that. Now, in China's case, what people sometimes perhaps don't understand is that China has to buy something. It can't just sell dollars because China has a large trade surplus and therefore, it has to invest the excess funds that it makes in that large trade surplus in something. Traditionally, it's parked those in dollars, in US government bonds, or in, I don't know if they buy inflation-linked bonds, as you've been saying, but essentially in US securities as well as some other stuff as well. But now, over the last 
year or so, they've been heavily and rapidly buying gold. And as you say, this is an important indicator that essentially they're taking a big chunk of their trade surplus now, and instead of building up their reserves in US dollars, i.e. US assets or assets that are priced in dollars, they're buying gold instead. And that seems to me a clear indicator that de-dollarization is not complete, obviously, but it's well on the way to happening. Because simply, if the United States decides that if it doesn't like your foreign policy, it can take your reserves, then for a lot of countries, that's not a good bet to make, and it becomes literally a bet. Yeah, I mean, first on the ETFs, you say that it's kind of surprising that they're selling. I mean, in a sense, it is because the gold price, I mean, the gold price has fallen a little bit, don't get me wrong, but it hasn't fallen much. It's not that surprising that they're selling, though, because the the indicator, the key indicator that you'd use if you were a gold trader for the past 12 years is telling you sell. It's telling you that the fair value of, of gold right now is about not half, but almost half what it currently is. That's absolutely enormous. And even if people aren't aware of the correlation, the way the trading tends to work is they tend to end up picking up on signals which are tied to the correlation anyway. So I'd say, I mean, I'm not much of a gold trader personally, but I'd say the gold trading market now is full of people who are following a, a bunch of leading indicator signals that have been kaput for for about 16 months. So what's the new signal? Well, I mean, it's as we're discussing it, central bank buying. I'm not saying that the tips aren't going to determine gold prices at all moving forward, although they may not. They're currently not doing so. And we'll come back to that in a moment because that's very important. But they currently aren't determining all of it. A rational player now in the gold trading market has to factor in these central bank purchases. So let me say one thing about central bank purchases and then say something else about the breakdown in the correlation, because although it sounds like a technical detail, it's actually very important. The central bank purchases in 2022, which if we go on the breakdown of the corporate correlation, probably only really started mid-year. So we probably only have six months of these large-scale buying. Well, the, the purchases in 2022 are the highest since 1967. We saw a big spike in central bank gold purchases in 1967, and we've really seen nothing like it since, until 2022. And 1967 was the year when the Bretton Woods system started to come to an end. The Bretton Woods system, that is the pegging of the US dollar to gold, died in 1971. But the you know it was on its sickbed in 1967, and the reason that central banks were buying in 1967 was because they got a sense that the monetary system was changing. And as I said, we've only really got six months worth of buying, in my opinion, in 2022, and we're already up close to that 1967 level. It'll be very interesting to see the levels of purchases in 2023 because the data that we have currently shows that they're buying that central banks are buying as strongly if not more strongly than they did in 2022. So the second point is just to make a more global point about the tips more about the co- breakdown of the correlation. So as I said, the gold up until very recently, 10 months ago or whatever it is, or sorry, yeah, 10, sorry, 14 months ago or 16 months ago was driven by US inflation rates and US interest rates. Now, in theory, both of those variables are controlled 
by a quasi-government organization, the Federal Reserve. Federal Reserve sets the interest rate, therefore it sets the anchoring rate for a 30-year bond or a 10-year bond. And in theory, the Federal Reserve should be able, through its monetary policy, to control the US interest rate. Now, what that actually means is that a quasi-government institution in the United States set the gold price. Not perfectly, by no means perfectly, but in theory, it was the setter of the gold price. It no longer is. At least for now, it no longer is the setter of the gold price. The gold price, up until recently, was a market-determined price tied to Federal Reserve policy. Right now, it is not. It is determined by physical gold purchases by central banks all over the world. And as you say, leading the charge of those central banks is the Central Bank of China. So the Central Bank of China probably have the most pull on the gold market right now today. Now, will that continue? We'll see. Depends on how much they buy and how much they sell. But right now, they have control over that. And they have control over it in a diff- through a different mechanism than the Federal Reserve used to have control, not through their monetary policy, but through physical gold purchases. Now, does this really mean anything? Oh, does he that controls the gold price control the universe? No, not necessarily. But it's interesting. It's interesting, nonetheless, that the gold price has become decoupled from the all-encompassing Western financial system and is now being determined by the raw purchases of central banks like the Chinese central bank. Yeah, one last thing before we go, and on that matter, it'll be interesting to see what happens once, if and when, and we expect it to be when, but I think it's fair to say that we should say if, at present, recession hits the Western world. And the reason I say that is because we should go back a little bit to the start of this uh, section and explain a little bit why uh, the price of gold is linked to the real yield or the kind of inflation-protected U.S. uh, Treasury yield, the TIPS yield. And the reason is quite simple. It's this. Gold is not an interest-bearing asset. It's simply not, you know, like if you buy gold, it doesn't pay you interest every quarter or interest every year. And you don't get a share of the profits in the same way that you do with stocks, equities. You buy gold and you just hold it. It doesn't do anything. It's like a pure store of value. And traditionally, what that's, what what's happened with the gold market is that when interest rates go up, when real rates are high, it makes more sense to buy like a treasury bond, right? Because that is paying that is paying an interest rate. It makes more sense to buy maybe a stock, although that's a very a much riskier form of asset. Whereas when you know yields are very low, when the you know the real interest rate that you're going to get on say a treasury bond, like a U.S. sovereign bond, a U.S. government bond, is very low, then the cost of carrying gold is not high at all, and it might make more sense to store value in that. Okay, so what we've seen over the last two years correlated but not caused necessarily, I suspect caused quite strongly by the US seizure of Russian reserves, but certainly correlated with that, I think it's fair to say, is that link between you know the rate of interest that you can get minus inflation on a US treasury bond, US government bond, and the price of gold has been broken, that kind of inverse link. You know, yields go up, gold goes down, yields go down, gold goes up, okay? That's been broken. But what happens when a recession hits? 
and the central banks start lowering interest rates, what happens then? Does gold continue to go up? Does gold restore its previous yield, but from a much higher base? Sorry, its previous link, but from a much higher base? Does it then kind of surge even higher to two thousand to three thousand, $4,000? Who knows? That you know, That's going to be interesting. Is the link broke forever? Is it now just going to be set by central bank purchases and sales and maybe some ETFs there as well, but mainly central banks? Or have we got a higher base now? Are the central bank's going to continue buying into strength? And, you know, we're not giving an in investment advice here. We should be clearer on that. But I think it is. it would be interesting in terms of, you know, geoeconomics and geostrategy. Are central banks now just buying and accumulating for the long run? Are, you know, is China and, you know, are the other central banks who are purchasing perhaps on a smaller scale simply going to continue accumulating gold no matter what the price does? That's a really important question. And I think once the interest rates shift again, or the cycle of the Federal Reserve shifts from a tightening cycle, raising rates, to a loosening cycle, lowering rates, if the trend, you know, what the trend does from there will be very important in terms of, you know, giving a final answer in terms of what's happening at the moment. Right now, we can just speculate. Sing when you're winning. Several months ago, a an Indian emigre, a Sikh Indian emigre called Hardeep Singh Nijar, was murdered in Canada. And very recently, the Canadians, the Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, said that he had received evidence that, in fact, Mr. Nijar was assassinated by Indian agents on Canadian soil. Uh, a little bit of background, Mr. Nijar was part of a movement which seeks to create a, a, a Sikh homeland in the Punjab province of India. This has been a long-running campaign, sometimes bloody. It has indeed led to shootouts in the 1980s that killed thousands between activists of this, this campaign and Indian security forces. And Mr. Nijar, though he was residing in Canada, was apparently quite a figure in organizing and campaigning for a Sikh homeland in India. The Indians view such organizations as terrorists for various reasons and certainly don't like the idea of a huge swath of Indian territory being carved out for as an ethnic homeland. However, the key part of this story is that Mr. Trudeau's revelation that he had hard evidence that the Indians were responsible for this assassination, and it was indeed an assassination, a politically motivated assassination, caused outrage in New Delhi and a really serious diplomatic spat between Canada and India, which has involved the expulsion of diplomats from both sides and also an Indian decision to stop visa services for Canadian citizens. Um, the New York Times revealed that the intelligence had in fact come from the US and the US very swiftly swung behind the Canadians, mainly through the US ambassador to Ottawa, who said that it was potentially a serious violation of the rules-based international order 
that phrase that we've heard many times on multipolarity, and that the Indians should um, start cooperating with the Canadians in their investigation into the murder. The Indians, for their part, say that until Canada produces said evidence, they're not going to comment on it, and they are generally acting with outrage and accusing Canada of harboring terrorists. So this is the first, or perhaps, yeah, I mean, I think it's fair to say, I think this is the first spat between the West and a non-aligned country. Traditionally, the spats have been between the Western Russia, the Western China, countries which are overtly aligned against the West, especially the United States. Uh, but this is the first one that involves a non-aligned country, and indeed a country that is in theory quite friendly with uh, the West. Uh, India is part of the Quad, which is a security alliance aimed at containing China, and the Quad includes India, the US, Japan, and Australia. And it's seen as a keystone state in terms of the US's efforts to contain China. So the fact that this spat is emerging between them, potentially damaging relations, it seems to have already damaged relations between Canada and India, but the fact that the Americans are swinging behind the Canadians on this, really, I think, is uh, potentially has quite serious ramifications. It's clear, it's been clear for a while that the US has been displeased, that India hasn't joined in US-led efforts to economically isolate the Russian Federation. And it hasn't joined in US-led sanctions on that. And, you know, the US has been applying pressure for quite some time. Now, this comes as well. And we are seeing potentially a situation in which India, which is usually, usually fastidiously non-aligned as a nation or multi-aligned, they would perhaps say, like to keep their feet in lots of different camps, not swing one way or the other is suddenly coming under a lot of diplomatic pressure, and especially now after this assassination scandal from the Western world. And I think this is something that really might push India into a position where it has to choose, and it might not choose the West in such a situation. I mean, I, I hate to reveal, but Multipolarity Podcast does not have any evidence whether the, whether the Sikh activist was murdered by the Indian intelligence services. But... A little bit of context actually not only helps understand, I won't say how strange this event is, but how ill-timed it is, and also suggests that the Canadians are probably right about the culprit, is the G20, the recent G20 summit, which was held in India. We covered it on the show. I think we did two shows about it. It was hosted by the Indians. It was widely touted as a success on both sides, by both the Indians and the Western countries. Obviously, G20, just to refresh people's memory, is a spin-off of the G7 slash G8, came out of the financial crisis or a series of financial crises, um, was quite successful in containing or helping contain the 2008 financial crises. It was a an extension, probably the last extension of the Bretton Woods financial architecture from 19, that was put into place in 1944, led to Western dominance effectively, or American dominance really, over the financial architecture. In August, I think it was, the, or perhaps it was early September, we have a very um, successful G20 meeting. This provokes jubilation, in a sense, in the West. India looks like it might be the last man standing in the BRICS, 
All the other countries seem to be going their own way. China's allowing what Russia and so on. And India, there's a potential there. There was even talk about being a potential there to peel India off the BRICS block and bring it into Western orbit. Now, we expressed skepticism of that. We thought it would remain a non-aligned country. I think we're getting more evidence of that now with the assassination. We thought it would uh, remain a non-aligned country that would swing both ways and take advantage, much, much like Turkey does. But even perhaps among the people who weren't so optimistic about peeling India off the BRICS block, you know, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be a terrible thing to have a kind of man in the middle there. And then, you know, only a few weeks, we actually find out, because I think the activist was murdered in June. So just prior to the G20, there was a apparently a murder of a, a Sikh activist on Canadian soil, which is a very provocative act. And this makes me think that the West are probably fairly convinced that this, ha- you know, this makes me think it's real, because why would the West go and sink the progress that was made after G20 with the only, remember, the last man standing of the BRICS alliance, if it didn't really think that this happened. So it probably did happen. It's, as I said, quite ill-timed for the relationship, which I think is worth noting. And I mean, it's hard not to pull in an analogy here, which is the, which again, we've talked on the show, the killing of the Washington Post journalist, Khashoggi, Jamal Khashoggi, in the Saudi Arabian Uh, embassy, I believe it was in Turkey, correct me if I'm wrong. This was a few years back, I think it was 2018, although I may be wrong about that. And and effectively, the, the Khashoggi murder was the beginning of the souring of the Saudi American or Saudi Western relationship, which has now resulted in a profound shift of balance of power in the Middle East. And has also resulted in the Saudis and the Russians currently, as we speak, controlling the oil price, which they are currently driving up to $100 a barrel. I believe we spoke about this recently. I mean, I'm just under something, even a, a, I wouldn't say a small event, obviously, an assassination on foreign territory is not a minor thing, but, you know, something that a small amount of people can do, in a sense, can have a profound effect on diplomatic relationships. I just say before handing it back that that maybe we should think about the Khashoggi thing before acting here, because I saw the opinion leader in the Financial Times today at the time recording was by their main foreign car or foreign policy wonk, I guess, Rackman, Gideon Rackman. And he's saying, you know, oh, we cannot let this stand, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I get where he's coming from. I get it. But it's just probably worth remembering that we, we had a bit of a freak out over the Khashoggi killing and probably justified it was horrendous. I'm not trying to defend it. But the ramifications of that have been very profound. And if India is as important as some commentators were claiming around the time of the G20 meetings, which I believe is true, I believe it is that important, then maybe, you know, the West should hold their horses a little bit here before having a bit of a, you know, fainting spell on the cage. I suspect quite strongly that it's more than that, actually, Philip. I, the Khashoggi affair, as is, is, is horrible and unconscionable as it was, I suspect was more about genuine outrage among the media class in the United States who do have some sway that, you know, over the US government, outrage that one of their own had been murdered. 
in such a way. And by regime, that sort of person doesn't really like much to begin with. There was already a little bit of disquiet about the, you know, the type of uh, government and society in Saudi Arabia and why the U.S. was allied with them when so much of U.S. foreign policy is cloaked, is swathed in ideas of spreading liberty and democracy in the American way. I think this is more than that. The the United States has seen India as a crucial ally in the Indo-Pacific region, perhaps the crucial ally long term. It has clear disputes with China. I mean, even a land border dispute, which we see flare up from time to time. Indian and Chinese soldiers were literally fighting each other in the Himalayas with sticks and stones and killing each other with sticks and stones within the last few years, which shows how current that border dispute is. India could potentially, for those who like the kind of the early 21st century global economic system, India could have provided a kind of a replacement, low labor cost, large population market for US businesses for manufacturing. And the the US generally saw India as a key partner in containing China, as I said. The response that India has had to the sanctions that the West imposed on Russia after the invasion of Ukraine, I think came as something of a shock. I think the US assumed that India would be on board with that. But quite to the contrary, India just made decisions based on their own national interest. And I think that really displeased many of the people in Washington. And since then, we've seen an increasing amount of uh, pressure placed on India. We've seen a lot more murmurings in the press recently about, for instance, the treatment of Muslims in India, about some of the policies of the Modi government and some of the kind of the Hindu nationalism as it's referred to here. In addition to that, we've had a lot of complaints about the dealings that India has with Russia with regard to the oil trade. The US has even started to impose secondary sanctions on some Indian companies that are connected to Russian diamonds. Russia is one of the uh, largest producers of diamonds, perhaps the largest producer of diamonds in the world, uh, but certainly one of them. And of course, you know, one of India's uh, big industries is diamond polishing. So taking kind of rough diamonds from the ground and making them nice enough for, you know, to go on your, your beloved's engagement ring. And a couple of Indian companies that are dealing with Russia apparently have had uh, money seized, uh, tens of millions of tens of millions of dollars of money seized by the U.S. You've also had, you know, some of the West's key allies, like the ever German Foreign Minister uh, Annalena Baerbock, who went and went to India and gave one of her typically diplomatic lectures about how the country she was visiting had to clean up its act and do far more nice things about the way that they treat their minorities and all of the rest of it, which didn't go down well in India as it didn't go down well in China. So you've had a lot of kind of pressure mounting on India, I think mainly because of their decision to not align 100% with the West, to remain non-aligned or multi-aligned, depending on how you put it. And this is the latest... This is the latest blow, essentially. The investigation had been going on for some weeks and months into this assassination. Suddenly, the US provides evidence that it was India and at the same time swings behind Canada with regard to that. Swings 
behind the Canadian side. It doesn't say India is our ally, Canada is our ally. Come on, guys, let's get our heads together and not let this get out of hand. No, it picks sides. And, uh, you know, I think that it's an effort. I, I think the US is making an effort. I'm not saying that, you know, the assassination was arranged the murder was arranged to do that. I'm not- but I don't know. I It feels to me like it, it probably was a kind of a, I wouldn't say random event. I'm sure, you know, if the Indians did do it, they calculated and so on the diplomatic impact it would have. I assume they did. But I do wonder if, you know, we just kind of find these things intolerable, whether it's Russian assassinations on British soil the killing of Jamal Khashoggi. And I take your point that he was a, a member of the journalistic class and directly tied to the United States and so on, or whether it's a killing of a Sikh activist or so on. I I think these things have always kind of made the West uncomfortable, as well as that even when, when the Israelis hunted Nazis and so on, it was always people had a kind of a dual view of it in a sense. And maybe it's hypocritical given drone programs and so on, but, you know, my opinion, I'm I'm a stone cold realist. I don't really care about hypocrisy in these things. But the I mean, I do wonder if it really is kind of like it happened in June. People had a sense of it. You know, don't release all that during the G20. We'll try and get things back on track. And eventually, at a certain point, the people who are just screaming loudest that we need to talk about this, it's it's not okay. You know, they come out and then it becomes a moral issue. I, I'm not saying that's definitely the interpretation. Maybe you're right. Maybe there's, you know, chess pieces moving behind the scenes. I'm just saying that, you know, when we do look like so when we do look at something like the bareback effect, when we do look at the ramifications, the enormous ramifications of the handling of the Khashoggi event, death, I, do, I sometimes wonder if just assuming kind of emote, you know, if assuming that there's a plan behind it rather than the emoting is always the best idea. I mean, ultimately I'm agnostic. We don't know. We don't know a great deal about the event. But I think it's possible either way. And I think all we can really say is, unless we just see this leave the headlines in the next few weeks and never be talked about again, it probably will have big ramifications. Green in the red. Oh boy, I think we can now say with certainty something that I think we've assumed on the show for quite some time, that multipolarity is bad for green. (laughs) Multipolarity is bad for the green movement, really bad for the green movement. So... The latest that we've seen is a report out in the Financial Times that as of this week recording, we've seen a fall in the renewable sector share prices of 20% in only two months, a 20% decline in, in renewable energy share prices. At the same time, oil and gas stocks have rallied by about 6%. Much of this rally is on the back of the production cuts being undertaken by Saudi Arabia and Russia. Now, that all sounds like a very immediate market jittery volatility event, but it won't be. We'll get into it in a moment. Before we get into that, it's worth saying that this isn't the beginning of the problems for the green movement, or at least for the green movement in economic and financial terms. Back in June, BlackRock CEO Larry Fink said the company would no longer be using the ESG label. That's the Environmental, Social and Corporate Governance label. Huge blow to the industry, not just because BlackRock was is the largest asset management company in the world, but also because they were an early adopter of ESG products. 
When Larry Fink came out through ESG under the bus, which presumably is powered by diesel fuel, a lot of people said, you know, this is this is just posturing. Fink himself said that ESG, the term had become politicized, mainly due to the efforts of Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida, current presidential contender, divesting the state's funds from ESG and turning ESG into a political issue. It wasn't just DeSantis, but he was at the forefront of that. I never thought that was the case. I've been watching the ESG market for quite some time. I'd actually, I've done so far. I've done two studies on the ESG market, and I was fairly convinced that the wheels were coming off anyway, and that people like Larry Fink, who are well informed about these things, were probably realizing as early as June that this that this was a dead duck. So, what's driving it? Okay, well, there's a short term and a long term driver. The short-term driver is what I alluded to at the beginning, the rising oil prices, which are being driven by the Saudi-Russian bilateral capacity to now control the oil price, which is not alluded to often in news stories, but not overtly talked about. Huge development. You've emphasized it on the show before. I think that's pretty much brought back to the fore that you know you can't rely on easy, cheap fossil fuels because your adversaries now control the price. Well, that's a big glass of cold water thrown in the face of anyone who is half-heartedly supporting the green movement, because if you're half-heartedly supporting the green movement, your attitude is kind of, okay, you guys can play at that if you want, so long as it doesn't affect the bottom line, the economic bottom line. And the ready access to fossil fuels ensures that it won't affect the bottom line. And if you guys, the green guys with the solar panels and the windmills, if you eventually get a workable energy source, so much the better. We won't be dependent on these fossil fuels anymore. But until then, you can go and play in the sandbox and we've got the fossil fuels here ready and waiting. No longer the case due to the Saudi-Russian alliance, among other things disappearance of Russian gas from Europe, et cetera, et cetera. That has been a huge blow. It's meant that people can't really just allow these this to, to play in the sandbox anymore. It has to be taken more seriously. The second driver, we might talk about, I'll just mention it now, and then we might talk about it further, is the end of low interest rates. This is separate from the energy issue itself. This has to do with investing in green companies. Mutual a friend of the show, the infamous Tinkzorg, although we can't call him Tinkzorg anymore because Elon Musk has decided to take that that crown off his head. He has now got some other account. But Malcolm Cheyune, a friend of the show, has referred to it in an essay that he and I are writing as the alternative in- energy industry is like a hothouse plant. It is not like a big giant red oak. It is a fragile entity. And these companies can only really survive in uh, an environment of low interest rates and usually on top of the low interest rates, government subsidies. So just before I hand it over, I just want to read a quote because it's fantastic and it just shows how cynical certain aspects of the market have become. And just to give context, the markets since the ESG craze and especially since the end of the lockdowns has become, you know, worship worshipping of these renewables things. But there's always been a bunch of cynics in the back who actually crunch the numbers. And they've been sneering from the sidelines for a while, but they are coming out of the closet. 
Louis Vincent Gave, uh, one of the head guys at the influential Wall Street research firm Gavacal Research. Anyone working in financial markets will have come across Gavacal Research. They're very good. Here's a quote from him from a, a recent note reported in Bloomberg. Embracing lofty alternative energy goals was fine when states enjoyed unlimited funding at near zero interest rates. In such an environment, why not placate single-issue voters with expensive promises? But this dynamic changes rapidly once capital is no longer free. So perhaps the simplest explanation for the alternative energy faceplant is that in a world in which the cost of capital is on the rise, projects whose returns consist largely of virtue signaling go out the window. Ouch. Right through the heart, I can feel the pain of the green people reading that. But Look, it's all true. I, I come from this, I, I come to this story as somebody who's a little bit more enthusiastic about the potential for green energy, a little bit more, you know, hopeful that it, you know, it won't cost a huge amount of money in the long term. And in fact, it can uh, make money in the long term. It, it, it can be a net economic benefit in the long term. But let me say something right now. At the beginning, you said that multipolarity was, you know, seems to be bad for green energy and the whole ESG industrial complex. What I would say to that is, is this, and it's very simple. The foreign policy preferred by exactly the same people who are most fanatical about environment, well, not environmental issues, but climate change issues and the green energy transfer, okay, transformation. So the foreign policy that's most preferred by those people is the biggest disaster for their cherished climate change and green energy transformation, okay? Why is that? Well, first of all, it starts dislocating global trade networks and logistics lines. It takes a natural resources superpower out of the market. It turns off a lot of other countries who start making their own arrangements. And this is all inflationary, okay? Like if you remove Russia from the market, if you start a trade war with China, it's all inflationary, ultimately. Okay, what does that mean? Well, first of all, it means that central banks decide they want to increase interest rates to tackle inflation. What does that mean? Well, there's simply less money sloshing around to invest in fairly speculative assets, green energy startups and the like. You know, we've all seen it with the, you know, Silicon Valley. It's really easy to pump loads of money uh, through venture capital firms into apps of fairly questionable quality and let those apps run you know hundreds of millions of dollars losses year after year like say uber for example when interest rates are like 0.25 percent when money is essentially free but as soon as money starts costing something again well you know those companies have to cut their cloth there's a lot less money sloshing around and exactly the same goes exactly the same goes for the speculative investment in a lot of the green startups a lot of the new technology rollout a lot of the a lot of the ramp ups of the production lines and all of the rest of it okay so that's the first reason why the foreign policy that's pursued by you know the kind of the liberal interventionists or the neoconservatives or or you know really just the establishment in the west these days is bad for the green energy transformation and for climate change tackling climate change in general the second reason it's really terrible is that those trade dislocations and the sanctions they put on 
countries like Russia, have negative economic effects. It's all well and good telling citizens that they've got to pay like a green energy surcharge on every electricity bill. It's all well and good putting a carbon tax on everything, therefore lifting the prices of all manufactured goods and all electricity that's produced by fossil fuels and all the rest of it. It's all well and good doing that when times are good, when the economy is growing, when people have jobs, when people feel like they're getting better off anyway. Yeah, okay, you go do that. Yeah, we kind of climate change is important in the back of my mind. Yeah, we'd like to have, you know, solar power rather than a choking coal power station. Yeah, no problem. Go and do that. But as soon as, you know, have years of, you know, high inflation, wages growing at a slower rate than inflation, general economic hardship, utilities bills going through the roof, and people start saying this is insane. And one of the easiest things you can cut from that are green levies, are carbon taxes. You can just do it at the snap of a finger. It's really easy. And what we're seeing right now are governments throughout Europe trying to tackle deindustrialization, trying to tackle the dissatisfaction of their population, trying to tackle inflation by really shifting away from some of these promises, these very aggressive promises they've made, you know, phasing out internal combustion engine cars by you know 2035 or 2040 or 2030 even in some countries having a significant carbon tax right throughout the economy rolling out you know wind power so it's you know 30 40 50 percent of a country's total energy and you know uptake and and providing taxpayer subsidies to do that that's all going now and i i can see a direct correlation between the economic boomerang effect of the sanctions that Europe imposed on Russia and the United States imposed on Russia and the foreign policy they've pursued with China and the trade dislocation that that's causing, I see a direct correlation between that all happening last year and the year before and the decline in the readiness of European governments to pursue aggressive green policies. You know, it seems clear to me that as countries are able to pursue, are less able to pursue aggressive green policies, as they're, you know, rolling back some of their promises for the green energy transformation, right at the same time that the cost of money is going up because interest rates are going up. So it's more difficult. It costs more to get money from the bank, to loan money from the bank. Those two things happen at the same time. Of course, green stocks are going to decline. Of course they are. And it's a prime example of the way that a lot of our leaders in the West have contradictory policy desires. It's a prime example of not thinking things through. Like you can have a green energy transformation or you can, you know, sanction Russia and, you know, have a trade war with China. You can't have both. It's one or the other. Speaking of uh, contradictions between domestic policy and foreign policy, I think listeners should say a rosary for Irish Joe, old Joe Biden. Poor old Codger has invested a lot of money in this. The Inflation Reduction Act is is about $6 to $1 invested in renewables. This is a renewables bill, very much. And Joe Biden has rolled out this bill, which uh, totals at authorizing $891 billion in spending, which speaking of his, of our mutual 
ethnic heritage is nearly double the GDP of Ireland itself. (laughs) Joe Biden has decided to spend substantially more than the GDP of his beloved Ireland on renewables. That spending is going, it's rolling out as we speak, and it will probably be continued to be rolled out until at least 2028, maybe 2030. So for the next five, six, seven years, this stuff will be invested in through subsidies and tax credits by the US government. Now, just really briefly, because we don't have time to go into all the history, there was some green spending undertaken by the Obama administration in the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, the ARA Act of 2009, I believe it was. Now, that was a stimulus bill designed to pull the US economy out of recession, and so any spending was good spending. It was classic Keynesian uh, pump priming. That's not the case with the IRA. But the difference is that the the sheer magnitude of green or renewable spending in the IRA absolutely dwarfs what was in the ARA stimulus. The other difference is that the ARA stimulus took place at a time when there was growing enthusiasm for renewables. The investments were being taken place in a market that was quite receptive to those investments. The markets were upwardly pricing. So the big difference between the IRA stimulus and the IRA stimulus is not just the relative size. The IRA stimulus is much larger in terms of what it allocates to renewables, but also the market environment. The market environment, when the IRA stimulus was launched in 2009, was very receptive to renewables. Market, the markets wanted to price these stocks as generously as possible because there was so much belief in those early days. Now Joe Biden has come and dumped inordinate amounts of money into the renewable sector at the very time when the markets have gone, actually not a great idea. In summary, nearly twice the GDP of Ireland is about to be spent on the renewable sector in America over the next five to seven years. The markets are not receptive to this spending. And my guess is that the failures in this sector, the subsidized failures, are going to be so overwhelming. There's going to be an absolute tsunami of them. And it's going to give the Republicans ammunition to fire against the Democrats for being irresponsible spenders for a decade or more. Thank you.